Tech Talk with Matthew Dickerson. Matthew Dickerson. Sit back and relax. It's time to talk technology. Ladies and gentlemen, our show today is dedicated to that niche group of people in the world who love to discuss advancements in know-how, but are a little bit hesitant about making footpath art. Ladies and gentlemen, our walking, talking tech talk today goes out to those tech talking, balking chalkers. Welcome folks to Tech Talk with Matthew Dickerson. Matt, how are you doing and what got you out on the footpath this week? Well, you've got me out in the footpath this week, actually, James. <laughs> Here we are. We're still in lockdown. So we've tried the remote connectivity for a few weeks, and that seems to be okay. We seem to have gotten the hang of that, and the listeners seem to have given us pretty good feedback, but we thought we'd try something a bit different this week, and as you say, get out in the footpath. Well, here we are, walking along the beautiful track of Riley Cycleway, along beside the river, and have a chat about technology. That's right, life be in it, yeah. Exactly right. The thing I've really noticed actually in the last couple of weeks though, it's probably been building up, I think, back in the old days, and when I say old days, I mean pre-pandemic. Back in the old days, when someone wanted to have a business meeting with you, a discussion about some new concept or even just a sales call, it was okay to pick up the phone and make a phone call. But what I'm finding now is that everyone says, right, we'll have a discussion about that. Now, do you want to use Zoom or do you want to use FaceTime or do you want to use Teams? Yeah, of course. Look, my mother is like this. I mean, you know, she initially struggled with the technology, but now we, we have to have FaceTime. We can't just have a phone call. It's almost like someone who's given up smoking, isn't it? And now they're the greatest <laughs> advocate. If, if they haven't used it before, they want to use it all the time. So I've actually had to tone some people down a bit. And I've said, it's okay. We'll just have this discussion, which is probably going to go for about five or ten minutes. We'll just do it on the phone. There's only you and I. It's okay. We can still use the phone. Yeah. If we want to get into it a bit further and start to discuss things at a greater depth, sure, let's look at a video call. But yeah, yeah, yeah. you've got to pour cold water on it. So it actually seems to be two streams. Some people in the big group meetings that are doing it all day, every day, get a bit over it. They're a bit zoomed out. But other people, it's a bit of a novelty. So every time there's a meeting on, they want to go and say, let's do a Zoom call. It's quite interesting. But good to see technology being used, I suppose. Yeah, that's right. And it's constructive. It's got a real purpose. And, geez, I don't know how I would have gone myself back in 1918, having to lock yourself away. And people did lock themselves away in 1918. That must have been really, really tough going, you know, and isolating yourself. Yeah, yeah. Even worse still, James, back in 1918, they wouldn't have had Tech Talk to listen to to <laughs> exactly. get them through the lockdown week. Exactly. That's my point, yeah. <laughs> Good point. Yeah. <laughs> I see that we're going to be looking at a change in feel for Ferrari. And Matt, you found a coffee table that's going to stir up overly competitive family members who are in lockdown. <laughs> and Japan has decided to build a new city of the future, as you do, of course. Mm-hmm. But let's get cracking with one for our uh, avid recreational cyclists, a bike tech that's getting souped up. You may know about fly-by-wire folks, but Matt, you're going to tell us about a new system for bicycles, ride-by-wire. Yeah. A remote-controlled bike is not a thing though. What's going on here, Matt? It is really exciting, and we're walking along a path now where I have this memory of one of my daughters, my youngest daughter, her greatest trauma happened not far from where we are right now, James. It was one day we were out riding our bikes and a few of the kids with me, we decided to have a bit of a race, and we took off and had a bit of a race, got to the tree that we were racing to and looked around and my youngest daughter wasn't there. <laughs> Left one of her offspring for dead. <laughs> That's right. Now, I've turned back around and here she is sitting beside the path, bawling her eyes out, 
grease all over her hands and I got back to see her. What's gone wrong, darling? And of course, the chain came off the bike. Oh, of course. She wanted to know what this stupid chain thing was, uh, why there was all this the grease. the greasy mess that comes with it as you try to repair the problem. And then you cry and of course, you wipe over your face with your greasy hands and that puts more grease over your face and you cry a bit more. That was me crying, not the, my daughter crying. <laughs> that was a nice little simulation we had back there too. Yeah. It was actually. Yeah. Yeah, not put on there at all. <laughs> so the thing that I looked at then, I talked to my daughter and said, why have we got these stupid chains? Well, before chains, you had things like the penny farthing. But oh, you needed yeah. a big wheel to get a bit of speed up because when it was a direct drive, when you just had a one-to-one -one ratio, your legs would be spinning at a million miles an hour trying to go at any sort of speed. So the logical solution was to put a big wheel on. When in 1885 they started moving to what they called the safety cycle, suddenly you had a chain that connected the cranks to the back wheel and you can have a ratio yeah look i've got to go back to that penny farthing i just don't know how more people didn't die on those things <laughs> yeah <laughs> Holy. Well, i've seen footage of races on penny farthings and they look crazy <laughs> oh goodness me <laughs> so the safety cycle came along and of course that chain with the efficiency of the chain they talk about efficiency maybe up around the 98 percent mark of the power you're putting into the pedals getting to the back wheel yeah, so that right. all sounds fantastic but one of the limitations of a chain is you've got to get somewhere where you can get the cranks turning in vicinity of the back wheel and get a chain to connect them. Now on a two-wheeled cycle, that's not too bad, but when you start talking about the reclining bikes, and they're yeah, actually quite an efficient yeah. way to go about, then you suddenly get this really long chain or sometimes multiple chains connecting them. Or if you go to some places around the world where you've got, say, a little three-wheeler, four-wheeler that's a, like a little taxi-type thing, you yeah, look underneath course, those, yeah. which I kind of do when I see those just because I'm interested in it, you see sometimes three sets of chains connecting the cranks to the back wheel. So it all yeah, gets too complicated. all this sort of energy uh, in, in the transfer there, yeah. And imagine that coming off, trying to climb underneath <laughs> that and get all these different chains connected. So Schaefer, which is a German company, has come up with a concept of generating power at the actual crankshaft, generating electricity, and then transferring that via electrical wires to an electric motor on either the back wheel or the front wheel, or even the back wheels if you've got multiple wheels. Yeah, right. And you do lose a bit of efficiency. That was the first question I thought of. Well, what's the efficiency look like here? About 5% of efficiency is lost. Okay. But it's not about the efficiency. It's all about design being able to open up the design mechanism. Well, and of course, this is the first prototype, so we might expect that with future prototypes, perhaps that efficiency might improve? Exactly right. And we're not talking about a lot here. We're talking about 5%. Yeah. Now, most of the mail that gets delivered around Australia by Australia Post, they're on some form of e-bike that lists the letters, not the parcels. And those e-bikes have actually got front-wheel drive. So they're a normal bike with a chain to the back wheel, but then they've got front-wheel electric motor to give them a bit of extra go and get up some hills. When you start to look at this, well, what would be the problem with having both wheels driving and you just oh, sitting yeah. there pedaling in the middle? The resistance changes as you pedal to generate more electri less electricity to keep your cadence constant. And if you talk to Tour de France cyclists, then you're effectively talking about trying to get that cadence the same all the time. So yeah, those yeah, cyclists right. are typically probably 80 or 90 revolutions per minute. The idea of this is you keep your cadence constant, it's generating electricity, and that's all being fed to a battery, then being fed to a motor in the back or the front wheel or both back wheels, whatever it might be. So it really is changing the design concept. Yeah, and carbon wow. fibre did a huge amount for the design of a bicycle. The old traditional two triangles stuck together yeah. and welded up, yeah. that all went out the window when carbon fibre came along because suddenly you had something so strong and light. So much stronger, yeah. 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 And this, I think, will do the same for bicycles. Being able to put the motors 
and the cranks, wherever is convenient, I think will do a huge thing for designer bikes. And of course, we're talking about e-bikes here. We're not talking about a traditional bike that you just have a chain connecting them, although you could replace it with that. But this is all about that e-bike revolution, which I think is coming. And as we get more and more people out of cars, maybe, and transported in different ways, I think you'll see more and more people using e-bikes. And this here, I just think is an absolutely brilliant solution. And no more excuses about the hills, huh? Well, I reckon it's bound to get more people out in the Treadley for sure. Board games, folks. Designed to bring people together, but ultimately tear families and friendships to shreds in reality. I love them. We had wall-to-wall -wall cupboard in the back room, full of them back in the day. Well, now that cupboard has shrunk into a coffee table, ladies and gentlemen. Matt, are you going to tell me that I can now spill my drink all over the board when I'm losing and it won't change anything? <laughs> it's all waterproof, I'm sorry, James. So there goes that idea. And the biggest problem, I think, with something like this is that how can you cheat being the banker in Monopoly? Isn't that one of the prerequisites? Wherever the banker must be able to be cheating somewhere. There's got to be an algorithm to make the coffee table cheat, <laughs> Maybe right? Maybe you have to hack into it. But this is a great idea. I love it. Trying to get my millennial kids to play good old-fashioned board games with yeah. cardboard and tokens and yeah. things like things paper money. Lost. Oh, all that stuff. <laughs> so trying to get them involved in that is quite difficult. But saying to them, here's a coffee table, which you can sit your coffee on, and it's got an electronic process built into it that you can play those same board games. So you can play Monopoly, you can play Scrabble, you can play Battleships, all those normal games. Yeah, like we've got those on our phones now, but that screen's way too small. Yeah, that's right. And I just like the idea of sitting around, up to six players on it. You're still playing those games that we loved as kids, but you're playing them in the modern version. And even though the gameplay is identical, I've got a much better chance, I think, of getting my millennials involved if I've got something that says electronics involved here. But so I can I can sneak a peek at my opponent's battleships, right? Is that well? One of the things they do do there's still some cardboard involved. Okay. They actually still but they can have hide underneath when you're not using. It, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. You still have a little cardboard cover that if you were playing a game that needed you to cover up your pieces or whatever information you had, that cardboard cover sits on the table. Yeah, so right. as long as not, someone's not standing up and peering over the top, <laughs> that's going to happen up. anyway, whether you're. <laughs> the That's old right. Yeah, well, some of those going to stand up and look, they were going to look regardless of how much you had it covered <laughs> up. Whether or not you had a coffee table on it. But just as an added bonus, I love this concept. In something like battleships that you mentioned, if your ship gets taken out, the table vibrates. So, so you get a very visual and a very tactile feel for what's happening with the actual board game as well. So it just gets better, James. Yeah, well, look, I love it. I love the idea. Put me down for two and look out, kids. Daddy's come to play. Mercies for the week. Language is integral in our ability to connect with each other. Accents and dialects are like flavours that determine how well a message is taken in. AI, artificial intelligence, developers have latched onto this and created some software that can change your accent in real time to help phone and online conversations. Help them flow a bit more smoothly. I don't know if you've ever had a conversation with someone in America it takes them about a minute to catch up with what you're trying to say. Yep. It's so difficult because well, you've got the accent. Well, it is, and it's more than that. You can't help yourself. You're in America, you suddenly start saying sidewalk instead of footpath. Yeah. You say car yeah. instead of car. And you suddenly start saying Melbourne instead of Melbourne. <laughs> Brisbane, we yeah. We start putting the yeah, syllables yeah, back yeah. in. We just lock to drop all those vowels out and just run with the consonants when we do it. They suddenly throw those vowels in and the word sounds completely different. From that perspective, what we're always doing is we're trying to mimic people around us to feel more accepted. And that's a simple way to do it. Obviously, when we call a call centre, those people might be 
in a different city, a different state, a different country. And sometimes people, first of all, don't feel that comfortable talking with someone that's out of their area. Yeah. But secondly, if the accent's strong enough, that can make it really hard to even understand them yeah, to begin with. and it can put you, like, well, and literally, like, you know, Americans don't get exposed to a lot of really strong accents because they're very insular nation, shall we say. <laughs> I remember going to Disneyland and listening to this guy speaking loudly on his phone, and he had that big, I guess, southern drawl. Yep. And then he hung up, and in a broad Australian accent, he said, oh, g'day, folks, how are you going? <laughs> You're from Australia too. And we quizzed him. He said, what's going on there? And he said, well, if he doesn't speak on the phone in an American accent, then the other person was always 15 to 30 seconds behind. Yeah, yep. And uh, conversations were so stilted and troubled. We all experience that. We go with what's familiar. Yeah, that's right. The idea here is what they tried first of all is they tried to put AI into the middle of that whole conversation. What happened was someone would have a conversation and the AI would jump in the middle and would actually take the words, convert them into its own language and then reproduce them in the other language. But the delay was too big. Yeah. So what they changed to do was in real time, it just took your words, being the call center operator, and just added some slight twang, if you like, or just some slight accent. And within 200 milliseconds, wow. the voice kept going through to the other end. So the conversation would be a normal conversation between two people. The call center operator would have the conversation, would speak as per normal. At the other end, the person just thought they were speaking with a call center operator that sounded a bit more like them. I'm sure it's not going to take a really strong accent from an India or a Philippines when we have some of those call center operators and make it sound like a good old fashioned Aussie, but it's just going to make it that bit easy to understand. Just, yeah, just to give it a little bit of a touch up with, yeah. a, fine, with a fine paintbrush, yeah. It's a good point. It is just like that touch up rather than a complete recomposition, which is what they tried initially, but the delay, the AO just wasn't fast enough to do it in one go. Yeah, right. Well, maybe Hollywood can pick up on that. No more bad accents from those uh, Hollywood stars, especially when they try to do Australian. Oh, that's, that's terrible, isn't it? <laughs> Now, Matt, we've talked about smartwatches measuring heart rate. Yeah, that's old news. Now performing ECGs and measuring blood oxygen levels. What's on the horizon for the not-so-humble wristwatch now? It is quite incredible what the wristwatch can do, and I've talked about it before. It's almost laughable. The things that a wristwatch can do now, it wasn't that many years ago people would laugh at you if you said, oh, I think a wristwatch one day will do heart rate, for example, or yeah. all the other wonderful things that it does. But we're starting to look at the next things for it to do, and I have no idea how they're going to achieve some of these. It's the first one that Apple has said, well, no, sorry, the Apple rumour mongers who <laughs> always give you the information oh, from Apple because it's never officially, that's right, never officially from Apple. They're talking about, and not this year's version, but possibly next year with some of these and maybe two years away. The first thing they're talking about is blood pressure. Now, we've all been to the doctor, we've had blood pressure taken, they put the big cuff around your bicep, blow it up, let it shrink down, check your blood pressure. That seems like a fairly tried and proven method. Then you start to say, your watch, how is that going to do your blood pressure? <laughs> but that's one of the parts on the drawing board for the watch. It will actually be able to take your blood pressure by looking at the actual pulses of blood going through the veins. That's one that I find quite incredible. Temperature monitoring, I can kind of see that. I can yeah. see the fact that it could do temperature monitoring. And we all know now when you walk into so many places and they pull out the temperature check, make sure you haven't got a temperature. Obviously they worry about COVID. But if you had a temperature check on a constant basis, you could pick up a whole range of things. It might be early flu detection, obviously COVID detection, but you could actually be alerted to a whole range of health issues. So I can see that one and that kind of makes sense. The next one I thought was quite good was sleep apnea. Lots of people sleep around right. have unsettled sleep. They just think they're a bit tired when they get up in the morning. 
But without really knowing about it, they've possibly got sleep apnea. Now, obviously, sleep apnea is a major problem. And if you've got sleep apnea, you can be just a bit more than tired. It can really lead to some serious health issues. By monitoring your sleep, that's one way that you can actually see what's happening from a health perspective. And then the other one, and again, I have no idea how they're going to do this. The other one that I find incredible is the fact that at some stage they'll be able to check blood sugar levels from your watch and actually check from a diabetes perspective your health in that area. What? So I'm assuming they don't have little needles that go through <laughs> from underneath Pitting the, skin. the, the watch yeah, wow. and prick into your skin and then check your blood sugar from that level. But I just don't know how they're going to do that one. But it, it may, be, um, may be connected to a little wireless implant um, that is that is taking measurements from inside perhaps. And that's a possibility I thought of, and that's one thing that I've seen a lot of in the past where you do have some other device that connects up to your watch, some sort of Bluetooth connection maybe, and maybe that's the way they'll do it, but they're trying to do so much with just the watch. They don't want to have all these things connected. Now I've had watches in the past that have had a chest band for heart rate and they've had a, an arm band to give you GPS recordings. Well, the watch now does all of that inside what it's already got there, Having those ability to do other things from a health perspective sounds incredible. Now, the advice I'd give here is obviously don't rely just on your watch. Yeah. If you see some of these things, you do an ECG, for example, or you check your heart rate and it seems a bit too high for you just sitting around doing nothing. Not like us at the moment, James, working very hard. <laughs> and so you look at those things and the thing I would do is use that as a guide and then go along to your doctor, go along to a medical professional and say, here's what my data says, can you now take it a step further and check me out a little bit more professionally and that makes sense but just what we're going to see coming with the watch is just incredible. Yeah I think your point there that a $500 watch is not going to replace a six-year medical degree Yeah. Um, but as a little um, early alarm system perhaps um, yeah. for things that uh, that can pop up or it might just um, come up in your conversation with your checkup with the GP. That's exactly right and I think the other thing is that Aussie males in particular are hopeless at going to the doctor. It's almost like out of Monty Python, you've got to have two arms and two legs hanging off and they call it a flesh wound, that suddenly someone says, mate, you're looking a bit sick, you really need to go to the doctor. If you had this constant checkup, it might, it might get some of those Aussie males a little bit more inclined to go and visit a professional because they've noticed something their watchers told them. Yeah, absolutely. Well, that's the longest segue for another story that I've ever come across. We're going from smart watches now to <coughs> smart toilets for tracking your health. This is an interesting one, Matt. I've been talking to kids for decades about having a quick glance in the bowl. It always gets the expected sort of oohs and ahs and, and squeals and whatnot. To get a real good idea about how you're travelling on the inside, you've got to have a look at sometimes what's going in the porcelain bus there. Now this porcelain bus is going to teach us a few things. It's going to teach us a few things and give us some information, which again, back to that previous point, you don't want to rely on this information solely. But it's getting to the point now where hopefully some of these researchers, some of these people who are coming up with this, and we're talking about Stanford University, Duke University, they're getting to the point where they want to develop these for in the home. So they've got the technology now where they can measure certain things with our faeces and our urine, but they're doing that in laboratory situations. But being able to do it in the home, where you just go to the toilet each time and get a checkup basically every time you go to the toilet, once, twice, three times a day, who knows? And it's really interesting because you get so much information out of what comes out of us. We all know that in Australia we get sent a little kit when we turn 50, and actually you're not quite there yet, James, but when you do turn <laughs> I'm 50... I'm going to find out all about you, it. You'll find out about it. You get the little kit from the government that says take a little stool sample and send it off. Such a good preventative measure, but so many people don't want to do it because they go, oh, that's oh, a just... bit... Yucky? <laughs> yeah, the connotations. It's a little bit gross. That's right. Whereas if you had your toilet, just automatically check. They'd be able to do early detection for 
gastrointestinal disease, for bowel cancer, yeah. a whole range of things, even fat content. So what happens with these toilets is you walk in and you say, hi, it's James here, that recognises your voice, and they know that it's going to record data against your name. You go to the toilet and it's got some sensors, some chemical sensors to look at what's in your faeces, what's in your urine, and give some sort of chemical composition of that. And... <laughs> I'm a bit hesitant to say this one. It's got some cameras as well. <laughs> just like you've told your that's kids. That's going to win the fans over. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> just like you've told your kids to just have a bit of a sticky beak down the toilet, then, yep, it has a bit of a sticky beak in the toilet. It can actually work out from that some issues in terms of your health. So it looks at all that information and then it gives you a report. Obviously, it's got Bluetooth because, let's face it, everything's got to have Bluetooth. So it's got Bluetooth to record that information back to your phone. And again, it's looking for trends, it's looking for changes, it's looking for various things that might relate to your health. And then you notice something and you go to the doctor and say, here you go, doc, here's my app. It tells me what exactly is coming out of me. Can you go and do some more testing? There's one other part that I just... I think people are probably going to not go to the toilet in my place when I get one of these installed <laughs> because the last part of it is it's pretty good with voice recognition. It recognises that it's James here going to the toilet, but it, it wants to be sure. It wants to make sure that it's not going to record incorrect data for someone and suddenly send someone to the doctor when they didn't really need to go. So just the same as we've got unique fingerprints, we've also got unique anal prints. So the cameras right. also check your anal print to make sure it really is James going to the toilet here. So just keep that one in mind when your friends come around to visit. Right, I'm just thinking about the first time we found that out. I get the fingerprint thing, we can, oh look, they've got this pretty pattern on your finger. Who was doing that for the back door? I just, um, yeah, well, someone did, and I'm grateful to them for it. I haven't got the answer to that one, I'm sorry. <laughs> well, you know, information is power, and early detection improves a person's prognosis in whatever case you've got. Yeah, look, um, I don't think this is going to replace a pathology lab still, folks, you know, just like the GP, six years of training, but a pathology lab, yeah, they've got all the fine de details there. But I think early diagnosis of, of little problems as they come up, I reckon it's a, there's a real go in that. Yeah, I think that's the critical point there. Yeah, uh, probably not for hypochondriacs, though. Probably a little bit too much information. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> yeah, yeah, warning, do not buy if you're a hypochondriac. <laughs> Noisy petrol-driven cargo. World EV Day was Thursday the 9th, just in case that managed to slip past you without you knowing. And Mercedes-Benz, who have been at the forefront of the automotive tech in the past, well, they weren't about to let that pass them by. Matt, there's a lot to talk about here with Mercedes-Benz, huh? There is, and it is significant, World EV Day. It's really a focus on EVs, and we're getting a bit more activity around the world. We've talked about them a little bit. But Mercedes-Benz, who for so long were the benchmark in luxury vehicles and the benchmark in tech. I think they've actually let a little bit of this tech slip by them and they're trying to catch up now. And in fact, Mercedes-Benz themselves have said that we need to catch up. This is our market, they've said. The yeah. EV market is the luxury car market. The amount people are spending on some of the EVs from the Teslas of the world, for example, that's their market. So they're finally woken up and they've got four new models or three new models and one concept model that are coming out. One of them, which I think is a great sign of what you can do with an EV if you want, is the EQS 53, which is really replacing the AMG high-performance vehicle. And the AMG, I've been in some of those old AMGs, and they sound beautiful, and they do this beautiful double-to-clutch downchange in gears, even though they're an automatic, and lots of power, big throbbing V8, usually <laughs> a turbo in there. And so that's been that sort of benchmark there, if you like, for that high-performance Mercedes-Benz. And they've said, hold on. 
these electric vehicles, they can go pretty well as well. So they've got this massive 560 kilowatt motor, electric motors wow. in the particular vehicle, zero to 103.4 seconds. Still got a pretty good range, over 600 kilometer range, about a 90 kilowatt hour battery, so good specs all around. And I think again, they're saying that this is something they can really impress their customers, their loyal traditional customers with. And I think some of those EVs that are out there at the moment, some people may be not buying them because they're not a brand that they know or recognize. So that's the, the first one out from them. In the, in the EQE, it's basically the same as the EQS, the same footprint, the same floor plan, but it's a little bit different in that it's just toned down. So this might be a more traditional Mercedes-Benz if you don't want all that performance. They've also got an EQB, an electric SUV. So we know that SUVs are incredibly popular around the world, yeah. in America in particular. So they're really trying to get that into the American market. And the one I love, the G-Wagon or the G-Class, and this is a concept EV at this stage, but the G-Wagon is something that I've often seen on various shows, sometimes in movies they're used, and it really feels to me like the SUV you own if you don't want to get it dirty, but you want to be seen that you could get it dirty if you wanted to. If you chose to. I've Look. never seen a G-Class or a G-Wagon with a speck of dirt on it. But they look like I'm a rough and rugged outdoors person. Well, it's a, a sports utility vehicle for people who like their sports nice and clean. Who and like smooth. their sports on TV, maybe. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so they've actually announced a concept vehicle, the G-Wagon EV concept vehicle. So not available yet, but I think they'll gauge the reaction from that. And I think you'll see some people will go, yep, that makes me even feel like I'm more important. I can even do more if I've got this electric version of the G-Wagon. So I think that'll be a bit of a hit as well. But it's good to see Mercedes really coming to the table and with strength. And I'm sure the companies like Tesla, some people might think they're threatened by this, but I think they'll be excited by this because the more activity there is in the EV market, the better it is for all the companies out there with EVs. As we see, Mercedes-Benz covering all the bases there, as you'd expect. As the war against pathogens rages on, we look to fight the big battles on many different fronts. While vaccinations provide acquired immunity, we're now looking at nanotechnologies for prolonged disinfection of surfaces. Matt, what's this about? Well, we've got nano in there. So again, we've talked about it before, James. Word. It's got to be prefix. important, hasn't it? If it's got nano in there, we know it's got to be new, it's got to be fantastic. But these nanoparticles are used to help fight, as you said, those pathogens, things like a pandemic. But one of the things I think is different about this is they talk about how long it can fight something like a virus for. And it's always a bit amusing to me when I see people doing a, a clean, they've had people in their business, in their shop, at their home, and they get out some sort of spray, they spray it and then wipe it all over. And I'm just not convinced that they're not just spreading around whatever was there to a large area. <laughs> right, now, yeah. I'm not sure, I'm not an expert on that, but the idea of this particular nanotechnology is that it's a disinfectant that you spray on something, you don't need to wipe it off, but it will protect that surface for seven days. And it's using a few different items there, a few different parts of it there. First of all, it's a fast-acting disinfectant, so it gets rid of what's on there. But the nanotechnology in there basically allows that disinfectant to stay on that surface. And it's not wet to touch. It's not like you have this slippery surface there. It'll dry off, but it leaves that nanotechnology on there and then keeps fighting any viruses, anything that comes along and touches that surface for the next seven days. And I think right, this is wow. really a secret going forward to try and fight things like COVID-19 because we just know that people come along and touch things and it hangs around there. In some cases, they talk about hard surfaces for many days. Yeah, well, whatever it takes, uh, we, we need some innovation, some ingenuity in, uh, in fighting our fights because we know that, uh, that viruses are getting sneakier and more resilient. 
and more deadly. I worry about what happens with the next pandemic after this one. Hopefully we'll learn some lessons. Yeah, a lot. And we'll have nanotechnologies. <laughs> Ferrari is a name synonymous with style and high performance. But those in the know might argue that those things come at a cost and the trade-off has traditionally been comfort. Or at least that was the trade-off until now. Matt, has Ferrari gone soft? <laughs> well, they've certainly gone different and they have to, I think. Ferrari, of course, was known for their huge throbbing engines, their V12s, their V8s. Again, that beautiful sound like the AMG Merc that I talked about before. Yeah. But it's getting to that point where they've got to adapt and change. They'll certainly be coming out with full EVs. They've already got hybrid versions of some of their supercars. But when it starts to get to the point where your average little commuter vehicle you buy is almost as powerful as a Ferrari, that's their big advantage gone. So they've actually got a new patent. Now, they haven't released a vehicle with this in it yet, and it's only been picked up by some clever people watching what patents are lodged. But the patent is a way to keep people comfortable over their entire body without doing anything about it. So in other words, they've got cameras positioned in the vehicle and those cameras focus on the passenger, the driver, the people in the rear seat, if there is a rear seat in, in this particular Ferrari model that you might get. And those cameras focus on your temperature. And if your temperature on your chest or on your arms or on your legs is different to other parts of your body, it will direct airflow to those different parts of the body at different temperatures. So these cameras will detect that you're uncomfortable before you realise you're uncomfortable. Exactly right. So you don't have to touch anything. You can set your comfort level. You might say, I'm comfortable at 21 degrees Celsius, and the cameras inside and the technology will do its best to keep all of your body at 21 degrees Celsius. We thought it was pretty clever when you had the ability to say, well, my wife likes it at 20 and I like it at 22, so I'll set my temperature at 22. And the two sides were pumping out different air temperatures, but let's face it, the air is mixing in the car anyway, yeah, so yeah. it didn't seem like a huge advantage. But this goes a step further, where it will direct different temperatures to different parts of each individual body in the car. And also, <laughs> if you've got no one in the back seat, for example, or no one in the passenger seat, it doesn't waste its energy by directing that cooling or heating to that particular area. It just focuses on humans in the car. Well, I wonder if Enzo Ferrari would be proud of this. Are we moving away from just worrying about the sleek and, and, and the speedy? Um, but uh, as you say, with so many other makes of cars matching that now, that's uh, right. they need to find something extra. You've got to adapt, you've got to develop, you've got to continue on that path, whatever your business is. And so what Ferrari's been known for for so long is being red and being fast. Yeah. Well, that may not cut it in tomorrow's world. One of the big problems in trying to bring new technologies to the masses is often the tech requires new infrastructure and that means fitting around the existing infrastructure. Well, in Japan, they're trying something different. Rather than adapting to the city, they're just starting from scratch and building a new city. Matt, I thought they were running out of space in Japan, but <laughs> um, quite clearly not. Apparently not. The woven city we're talking about here, James, and the woven city comes from Toyota. It's actually a Toyota-funded city. And that comes from the original concept of Toyota, which didn't start as a manufacturer of cars. It started as a clothing or a cloth manufacturer where it would weave that together. So the woven city, and I like the actual name because it talks about weaving some different technologies together as well. But the idea is, first of all, let's get these cars, obviously it's Toyota doing it, let's get these cars, these driverless cars, being able to be driverless. And one of the solutions that this city is talking about is actually building the city with the sensors in the city that are needed, that you can have driverless cars, but they don't have to be quite as smart. So they can rely on, A, their knowledge of the city for a start, and B, the sensors that are already built into the footpaths, the intersections. So there's so much work being done with 
driverless cars on cameras or LiDAR, different ways to detect what's around you. But this is a smarter way to do it where you just say, we know what's around us already. Let's start from that and then we've only got to worry about moving objects. So step one, that sounds fantastic. Step two, what else can we build into this city? What are the fantastic technology products? <laughs> well, if you're going to build in? a brand new city, you want to get everything right the first time, don't you? You do. They, Toyota actually called it a living laboratory. And so simple things. We've talked before about maybe retrofitting an area with a garbage, an underground garbage chute, for example, to get rid of garbage without having yeah. these noisy and unsightly garbage trucks. So, of course, it's got all that infrastructure built in as they're building the city from the scratch. They're building in all these things underground. So you've got your garbage areas that just take your garbage away. You're really talking about everything you can think about in a city built in. You've got renewable energy built in. It's trying to be completely self-sustainable so that you're not having to bring in power from anywhere else. All the power that's generated is needed in that city. It's basically 70 hectares, which is not that large really for an overall city. They're only talking about 2,000 people living here. And again, everything they can do domestic robots so they'll control the sort of houses that are built there and then the domestic robots they'll have will know the layouts of those houses so again they'll be a bit better in what they'll do there won't be stairs for example stairs yeah. get a bit tricky for a domestic robot but if you build a house or an area to live that has no stairs might have inclines instead then suddenly robots are a bit better and the other thing we talked about before james we've talked about smart home technology and one of the issues there, of Getting course, is... Getting everything linked up, yeah. Yeah, the standardisation. Well, this won't be a problem because all of this will be built as one integrated product. So all that smart home technology, all the promise of smart home technology is all there. And, and last night, I was actually out in the garage and I needed to go outside to get something. I've got some different ways to open my garage. I can do it via my smartphone. I can do it via my phone or Alexa inside. But my daughter, who was standing beside me, we were nowhere near Alexa. We were nowhere near one of the speakers there. <laughs> And she just said, Alexa, open garage door, which is what we normally do from inside. And she was standing there just dumbfounded why the garage door didn't open. Why wouldn't this work <laughs> everywhere? <laughs> so, what did they do in the olden days? <laughs> so I had a chuckle to myself thinking it's just so ingrained now in the next generation that you should be able to stand in the garage. Yeah. Just, let's face it, that's where the garage is. So why doesn't it work from here? Anyway, I had to go through and explain the, the sad news that she might have to walk five paces inside the house or pull the phone out of her pocket uh, to actually open the garage. So that was much. a bit tough. That's too much. Just let, leave the door closed. That's right. I'll walk around. <laughs> <laughs> so that'll be interesting to see. And again, I think what happens is you build cities from scratch with all this technology built in, and then you get to the point where you might start to adapt some of those technologies, the most successful ones of those, to a real-world environment where you've got a city where you want to backfit or retrofit. Part of it is just the fun of the experimentation and seeing how the population of the planet keeps growing, we're probably going to need more areas for people to live. So working out how to do it better is a good idea. Yeah. Yeah, look, an, an excellent idea and it'll be interesting to see how that comes. And I guess we're looking a couple of years um, into the future to see before that, that really starts to be livable. Yeah, that's right. I assume there'll be some buildings they'll be able to live in from the beginning and then it'll keep building and adapting. But the whole master plan is there and I think that's the important part having that master plan from the beginning rather than trying to retrofit. And there you have it folks, our very first Walking Talking Tech Talk, another smashing episode of Tech Talk with Matthew Dickerson. Nice work yet again Matt, smashed it out of the ballpark. <laughs> Thanks James. I've been your host James Eddy and don't forget to like and subscribe.